0: Welcome to Learn with Lowell. Today we're joined with Andy Lee, who is the co-founder of Vincere Biosciences, which seeks to bridge the gap between AI and biology and conquer age-related diseases. Uh, Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here, Lowell. I was digging through your Twitter and just for everyone noting in, Andy's one of the first people that pinged his social as well for questions. So anyone listening, if you have ever have a questions, like you can write in and actually uh, get it read right out. And there's one person who actually made a comment. They're going to be getting that asked later, but on Andy's Twitter, um, you you made this post saying, "Why is it that I always end up talking about bio at AI events and AI AI at bio at AI events and AI at bio events?" I, I jarbled that. Can, how does that happen? How, like, can you just like walk through that actual scenario? Because when I read that, I just started laughing.
1: Yeah, I think it, it's one of the. I think it's somewhat unusual to be bilingual across, across these disciplines and. So I, I go to, to both, uh quite a bit and uh, somewhat I think it's, you know, people are always interested in what they don't know and how it can be applied to the areas that they are interested in. And so, you know, I was actually just, uh, we went down to speak at, uh, UAB last week and, and again, I gave a talk on how to use big data for drug discovery and neurodegeneration. Um, but the, the key at the, the social afterwards, like I kind of talked about some of the emerging things with chat GPT and LLMs. And uh, that was the area everybody wanted to talk about it. It's kind of interesting to, to chat through those extra, those extra areas of the computation stuff with the AI people. When I go to the AI conferences, they're all interested in like longevity and, and uh, how, what molecules are actually working or emerging to the clinic or how we go about drug discovery. So I end up uh, just talking about those, and I, I think it's that, that curiosity on both sides. People want to
0: know about what they don't know. And then you have the company that you know bridges the gap and can do both. And so for them, for either party, they can just follow what you're doing and get a little bit of both at the same time, which is kind of fun. But what when you so a lot of people say AI, but it means different things. What does AI mean in conjunction with what you guys are building?
1: Yeah, definitely. It's it's an interesting question that that we've been debating for for a very long time. Um, You know, I think to my mind, AI is any computational system that can uh, make projections of, make new predictions off of uh, data. Like in a, if it's not uh, explicitly coded to do a thing, but it can, as it gets more data, it can refine. And so, by that definition, like a statistical regression is a form of AI. It can get better as it gets more data. Uh, I know a lot of people now are, you know, something that appears to be of uh, human intelligence, which is, I think, you know, that gets into a whole lot of questions around consciousness and human intelligence and where you draw the line between human intelligence and cat intelligence and plant intelligence, all of which have some variety of, I sense new information in my surroundings and decide to have some uh, outcome that will make me feel better or feel, you know, avoid the danger or find Mm -hmm. the food. Uh, So where that line is, and there are all kinds of computational systems that have like that level of sensors of their surroundings that they can make decisions on and get better as they go. Uh, So I think it's, I, I use the term very broadly um, in uh, you know going from and, and it depends on who I'm talking to and in some cases I avoid the term altogether and just say we do data driven drug discovery. In some cases it's big data. Sometimes it's computational or machine learning. Uh, right. But I, I think all of those are in some ways synonyms. Uh, you know especially when you look back to some of these algorithms were you know uh, defined in the 60s and and you know, earlier and are, are really now being used.
0: Right. Do you, um, do you, when you develop, do you develop an algorithm for what you're building or do you take like off the shelf algorithms that exist like open source ones and apply it to what you're doing and then train it off of your data? Like how to, like, what that uh, like?
1: All, all of the above. Um, so mm-hmm. our most complex system is a, biological simulation platform that we have a U.S. patent around where we wrote um, C-Cuda kernels to do a new type of physics-based computation to simulate the biological interactions inside of a cellular system, um, all the way up to um, traditional convolutional neural networks, where we take a bunch of methylation or transcriptomic or image data and uh, build a multi-layer neural net that will train on that data and you do a train test and now you have something that you can do predictions on naive data. Uh, through to uh, custom chatbot integrations where I'm just calling um, libraries from OpenAI or Hugging Face, and mm-hmm. so uh, have kind of the whole gambit there of uh what well, might be called ai
0: yeah i recently discovered hugging face and i'm surprised that the amount of information that people have freely given out on there like it's, there's there's like little versions of every closed system that people well i guess they're they're reverse engineering it but it has the same functionality as like some of these closed systems that people haven't opened up yet Like, it's pretty powerful stuff on there
1: it, it is and in a lot of cases the open source algorithm on hugging base is actually at the heart of what are the popular closed systems uh, that are available. Uh, I mean, it's been really predates a lot of what the the current wave of AI uh, has been.
0: Do you think, so I think I was recently listening to a conversation with Mark Zuckerberg, and he was saying that he thinks that the short term is going to be one on closed systems because they'll be able to, you know, hide or whatever, obfuscate, and they'll be like really well trained on specific things. But that over the long term, over the next like five, ten, fifteen years, or even longer, that open source systems are going to do better. Uh, do, you, as someone who's more knowledgeable on this, how do you see that dichotomy playing out? Do you see a closed closed system where? And I even then like what to what extent is it an open source system with anything that Facebook does do they have their weights of measures opened as well I don't I haven't looked into their. Their algorithms and stuff to know that and I don't know if I would uh, appreciate it if I was looking at it anyway, because I you know, don't have the knowledge base, but. How do you see the future running on the if you look over the next five 10 years what models are do you think are going to be more powerful the ones that are closed right now, or the ones that are open trying to be more open.
1: I think you'll end up with the with both emerging into this kind of battlefield of of options kind of similar to iOS and Android where you know technically Android is open and and you know, you, you could go and take that and build your own version, you know, Linux out there floating around. Mm-hmm. I, I think similarly you'll find most work being done with the closed systems, but a good chunk of open being there kind of as a, a safety net because there are a chunk of the world mm-hmm. who uh want to make sure that there's an open option I'm glad that there are I will say Facebook in particular has been a really good player in the open AI in the in the open source AI world um, contributing a lot of the underlying libraries that that drive AI and the Facebook AI research group uh has has put out some really amazing research that have pushed the ball forward uh you know some of it you know on par or better to you, what OpenAI has been doing, they just didn't put the marketing push on it because they were you know, playing targeting toward research and development uh, teams. Mm-hmm. Whereas, uh, and even OpenAI, I'm not sure they really understood or expected the massive adoption they were going to get when this launched.
0: Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm a bit. I kind of wish they would change their name because I think they're becoming more like closed AI with some things.
2: Yeah, Uh, occasional things
0: being closed i mean open
1: yeah it's effectively microsoft ai at this point
0: okay yeah that's what i that's what i keep hearing that you know i I watch these interviews with mark or other people like elon and elon in particular is quite salty over this considering he was helped found it and he apparently got the lead guy in there to come in um uh, I mean, he poses this question, how can something in open source that's a nonprofit turn into like a business closed source thing? But I don't understand that, too. Do you have like a theory on this, like how that was able to work without people getting in trouble or whatever, like going from something that's open source to closed like that?
1: Yeah, I I think so. From a corporate structure perspective, you see this all the time where a private for-profit company will make a nonprofit subsidiary or make a nonprofit that then... Uh, you know, they can move money through or raise capital for, for philanthropic purposes, and you know, hmm. and the other direction where you have non profits that create a for profit subsidiary and put things within that that they can then have profitable ventures around. Uh, and I, I, in some ways, I think RD and science should be profitable if you create value in the world, and clearly, OpenAI is creating value in the world, it's unlocked a lot of new capabilities and people are building new businesses around them. Uh, so I mean, it makes sense that there there, there could be profit to be had there. Uh you know some of the tooling is still being made available for open use if not open source. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and a lot of it is built on the same open source libraries underlying that like you could theoretically train your own model if you had your own data set and, and do the same thing um,
2: mm. I,
1: don't, I don't know that they should have to share their weights though
2: what what is the significance of sharing and not sharing their weights is that like the secret sauce when it comes to these things you know i don't even
1: know if the way neural nets work if if the weightings of the nodes would be reverse engineerable or reproducible. I suppose it the the one nice thing is you you would be able to take that, host a local version, and then fine tune it with new data to um, mm. some other purpose, uh, which is not uh, currently, to my knowledge, available with OpenAI as the starting point of these. Whereas it is with yeah, some of so... the underlying like uh, GPTs from that you can find on Hugging Face. H- H-
0: Hmm. I was watching I was watching this video of a person commenting on a video with Mark where it was like a, an AI engineer just like sometimes Mark Zuckerberg will say things in a, a vague way because that's just how business people do things. and uh, and he was like, this is what it actually would look like, the science of it. And um that they were they were saying that the reason they're more open source is because people can train the data on things that maybe Facebook doesn't want on their balance sheet so they can like there can be some like kind of more far far out experiments going on i guess like one may be like you know uh like only fans type stuff where um like it's really hard to get funding and make business people happy with that for some for some reason i think like i read something a couple of years ago where only fans almost run out of business because of the type of content on their site and so maybe like that type of stuff or relate type of stuff that doesn't let their investors be happy or their corporate earnings be happy um is a, another benefit of letting it be open source because then people other people can be taking that risk and you still be learning from it because it's open source like some, i imagine some data is coming back in terms of what's working what's not to the to facebook and stuff from that
1: yeah absolutely and that's where those underlying libraries being open is really important because i think you know even getting into more uh, mainstream businesses uh, direct discovery or banking type things where you've got a lot of IP or really sensitive information that you don't want out, you can't run those through a third-party uh, system for training. Um, but you could post an on-premise local or even on cloud on a private uh, set um, instance of those and train your own model uh, to have those. in so... I think that's going to be the really interesting next wave of implementations, certainly through the enterprise. The banks aren't going to implement open AI. They're going to build their own private instance. The banks are probably going to hire Microsoft who's going to use OpenAI to then make a private instance that does extend off of those uh, just because of those great system relationships. Uh, but you can go right now to hugging face or to the, uh, you know, underlying um, libraries there, and build your own, build your own GPT or LLM transformers. Like that's all uh, open source and available to throw it at your own data set. Build your own tokenizer, and like from scratch in a disconnected uh, setup, you can you can reproduce all of those. Uh, and, and a lot of that is because Facebook has made those tools available.
0: So I'm still pretty new to Hugging Face, and maybe people listening are like, "Why do they keep talking about Hugging Faces?" But uh, <laughs> Hugging Faces, could, could you just like just briefly define it, and then uh, where do you go on it? Are there like certain watering holes in particular? Maybe it's all like GitHub, so maybe there aren't watering holes, but I still think there, there are watering holes on GitHub where people consolidate information and then make link like link trees essentially. But yeah, so what is Hugging Face, and then how, how do you use it?
1: Yeah, so Hugging Face is an open source or a repository of open source LLM AI models and tools, and it's pretty cool in that most of them have a uh, have a demo page right there where you can drop in mm-hmm. text and run a query and like test the things out and see what the responses would be. And the APIs are very uh, clearly documented and easy to implement, and with that you can. Uh, include a few libraries and download a starter model and then fine-tune it to a new purpose and then start to run your own local LLMs uh, using that. And it's become a, a very big repository of uh, different types of uh, AI models, everything from you know image generation, music generation to chatbots and uh, GPT-type things. Um, some of the ones I've been playing with are, like, um, BioBert, which is a like another uh, LLM trained exclusively on biological data, like from PubMed. Mm-hmm. And so it h- achieves higher accuracy on uh, scientific uh, text generation and interpretation as opposed to, like, ChatGPT that's trained on everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and then you get into... You know there are other pros and cons depending on which one but um you know I it's pretty easy to go and browse so if you're interested in building your own AI uh, stuff um I would encourage you to take a look at uh, hugging face as a place to to get it uh, and they're all implementable with Python code and if you want to get started ask chat GPT, to generate you a Python script that will call the Hugging Face APIs to train a custom model. And you'll Mm -hmm. get a pretty decent starting point that you can then just run in any interpreter.
2: Yeah, that's
0: the weird thing. It's almost getting like uh, paint by numbers a little bit. Is when I when I ask ChatGPT for code, like it's like most it's most of the time it's right, or at the very least it will be wrong in the right ways, where'll it make me think of the right way to do something, which is nice. So even when it's wrong, it's quite helpful. It's kind, of, it's I think of it like it's easier to edit something than write something completely from scratch. So I I really love these tools. So anyone out there who's thinking, oh, is this stuff something you want to be doing? Like like you just said, um, just give it a try. It's it's it's. I mean, ChatGPT is open source, like it's not open source, it's uh, free, you can get into the beta or whatever it's called, and Hugging Face, you don't pay anything, which is the weirdest thing, like a lot of these services, like you, you can run it in Hugging Face, I'm surprised that, I mean, imagine there's some computation or something happening, like this isn't free, like nothing on the internet is free, like someone is paying for that data and that transaction and the, the the compute to happen. Um, so take advantage of it, it's a really great time to be alive to to play with these things and if I'm sure there's someone out there who, even ChatGPT, could probably, you like, know, I answer these questions even more. But um, the yeah,
1: I will throw in uh, one more thing. Just, there's been a lot yeah. of talk about the availability of NVIDIA GPUs, and everybody talking about how much compute it mm-hmm. needs. A lot of these models are small enough that you can uh, run them, train them, extend them on a normal laptop with without any special hardware. Um, it just gets faster from there if you do have a gaming computer or something to run them on. Um, but it, it's the the bar for just starting to get in and dabble is pretty low.
0: I think uh, I was reading that uh, ChatGPT for number 3.5 uh, costs like 900,000 or something for the data, just like the compute of the data was like 900,000, which if you think of the fact that they made like a billion dollars, like that's a pretty good return on investment. If you can t- return 900,000, yeah. $900,000 $900, was just to compute, Crap, they had a whole team. That's probably costing a lot more than nine hundred thousand dollars. While that's going on, but uh, it's it's. I feel like that's relatively uh, cost effective. Are you guys building your systems on prem? Like, do you have like, like a little supercomputer? Or are you are you doing something in the cloud?
1: We've we've gone um, on and off. Uh, so we started our first GPU computing partnered with uh, IBM using the soft layer soft layer data centers because uh, in. 2015, they were the only game in town for NVIDIA GPUs in the cloud. Um, but they had a nice uh entrepreneur um, program that they sponsored our first couple of years uh, there. And then we moved to uh, Microsoft Azure with their uh, BISPARC program and then followed on with some sponsorships from NVIDIA to fund the GPUs there uh, for some, some big projects um, that we collaborated with the Michael J. Fox Foundation on. Uh, and then we hit a point where you know we, we had some predictable compute power for baseline training and ended up building some on-prem capacity with, you know, like 24 GPUs that we could do basic sets of like training on and then um, still keep connection in the cloud. So we can do uh, hybrid, uh, kind of a hybrid situation where when we have projects, we can spin up a bunch of nodes on Azure or Google Compute or wherever and uh then run our training and then turn down when the project's done and then we always have this kind of R D uh center uh on brand
2: that sounds
0: like as i just imagine like getting to play with that every day it sounds like a lot of fun but uh, i've built some stuff here which i won't name so if no one hunts for it on the internet but uh because i you know you're only as good as like security is only as good as like the the neighbor next door's less security. And the best security is no one knowing that you need security <laughs> at all. But so like I've like I've been building some little small things for fun, uh, from old computers and things that I found on, uh, like Facebook Marketplace and stuff, and uh, Raspberry Pis. And so it's fun to it's fun to see these things be built and play with them every day. Even if even if you can't find like there's something really weird about building something on prem. It feels so good. I don't know about you, but it felt it feels good to me to build these little servers and then see them like light up and work and you know you can do like computer stuff on them.
2: I don't
1: oh, know
0: if yeah, you, like, built it all definitely. yourself in house or like you like hired someone in.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I, um, I started tearing things apart when I was a kid and, uh, you know, usually got them back together. Okay. But then uh was building my own computers like early on and I uh, continued that through. Um, so I still did that here too. And it's a fun project for the team to go out and like, you know, figure out what are the best components and how do we want to organize this? And, um, uh, it, in, this compute environment is kind of interesting seeing the big wave of everybody doing computer-owned like crypto mining a few years ago, which used a lot of the same hardware Mm -hmm. patterns that are now being used for AI. And uh, a lot of that is uh, pretty applicable to set something up that you want to run these little uh, build-at-home supercomputers, basically.
2: How Do the... I always wonder about
0: the, how long does technology last before it either becomes relevant or just degrades and dies, cause things aren't built like in the fifties where they last for a long time. Especially, especially since like things do just become obsolete. If if I was a crypto miner five years ago and I, I have like I went all in on, you know, uh Bitcoin or something and have a big farm because I have been reading about people who did that and then they, they lost all their money or something and so they had to close them down. It sounds like there might be like a leasing opportunity or something where they could like make those resources available to uh, someone out there to link into, and then they could be like the on-prem servers for them, which is just, I guess, the cloud in this situation. So is, is it possible for these things that are five years old, these old crypto people uh, pulled, even though five years, uh, to retool themselves for AI, take advantage of it?
1: I, I think a, a lot of the the bigger players um, did custom-built ASICs, these um, purpose-built uh, mm-hmm. computers that are were On silicon, just made to do mining, and those would probably be difficult or impossible to repurpose directly to AI. Mm -hmm. Um, The hobbyists who had a bunch of GPUs that they were just using, you know, under the bed, those are probably uh, more easy to repurpose because that NVIDIA platform is is really built for generic computing. It's just whatever you want to run through it. Uh, Yeah. And I think you'll see similar things on the AI side now. In fact, I've I've heard several companies are starting to design ASICs for AI compute, that the same kind of thing with NVIDIA GPUs becoming scarce. Um, We now have new people that are making purpose-built hardware that will be much faster for AI training, um, and those will probably become um, just as as big for a while for anybody who's looking Mm -hmm. to buy uh, shovels and pickaxes right now.
2: Just sell them, yeah the it's interesting, so you're aware of the the
0: metaphor with gold mining where the people who make the money are the shovel and pickaxe seller people the um well a lot of people don't know that one. I don't know why that's a it's a really good uh analogy whenever people think about business or how to make money. It's like don't be the people who need the shovels and pickaxes be the people who build them or something um
1: right, yeah, although if you look the, back from that what, that time the you know the the people who built the the railroads and banks are the ones who are still around today. So maybe uh, maybe the analogy isn't That's quite fair. as uh, accurate as people like to make it easier to repeat, but maybe not be all it's cracked up for.
2: Yeah, it
0: sounds like the real lesson is be a bank, own a bank, and then invest in political campaigns. So so not, the winds never go against you. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's that's probably the right thing. Uh, I think like no one got locked up. The only pe- the only people in the, the entire world in two thousand eight that got locked up. I think it was in like Iceland for uh, the two thousand eight uh, financial collapse. But so we, we've been talking around this a little bit. Vincere Biosciences, which I believe on your landing page serious Latin for victory, which is fun. I like Latin as well. There's a lot of Roman history behind yeah. me, including some over my nice. right shoulder. But uh, what what is it about? And uh, obviously, it has AI in it. And there, you know, if anyone's reading the title of the thumbnail, it's going to have biology as well. So, could you just tell us a little bit about what it, what what it what it does? What is the purpose of it?
1: Yeah, our our initial idea was to leverage computation and data to find targets that were better for diseases of aging, in particular Parkinson's disease, and using those, we really came to strong conviction that enhancing mitophagy would have potential to stop the progression of Parkinson's disease. Uh, mitophagy is the process of recycling damaged mitochondria. Uh, you may remember mm. mitochondria from science class as the powerhouse of the cell. Uh, the one thing everybody remembers from school. Uh, but they're really a lot more than just the energy producers. There are also nutrient sensors and viral invasion detectors and coordinate a lot of uh, epigenetic changes and cell to cell communications uh, inflammation and other things. And so as people age, one of the hallmarks of aging is that this process of damage control of mitochondria the recycling Degrades, you get less efficient ability to recycle your mitochondria. And so with this mechanism, we were like, it would be great if we had a way to boost that so that you could recycle the damaged mitochondria more quickly, bring the cells back to health. There weren't any good clean small molecules that could be used as drugs for that. And so we started drug discovery programs and now have a pipeline of small molecules that can increase the rates of mitophagy. They do what they're supposed to in cells, they do what they're supposed to in mice, and now we're preparing them for uh, development into human testing, hopefully within the next uh, year or so if everything keeps going well.
0: What For the mice studies, what was the result of the drug interventions?
1: We just uh, actually completed a few of these, which we haven't published the data yet, but are working on uh, using some really cool new tools that just came available in the last few years of transgenic mice that have fluorescent mitochondria, um, two different systems, one called MT-Chema that was developed by mm-hmm. NuoSund and Torm Finkel at the National Institute of Health, and the other MitoQC developed by Ian Ganley at the University of Dundee in Scotland. And um, through a recent Michael J. Fox funded project, we were able to license both of these. And the way that they work is they have these fluorescent tags on proteins in the mitochondria and they normally glow green, but -hmm. when they go into the acidic environment of the lysosome, they flip to glowing red. Mm -hmm. And so with this, you can visualize the whole mitochondrial network and how, where all the mitochondria are and, and what kind of shape they're in. And then also what proportion of the mitochondria are undergoing mitophagy at any given time. Um, super cool models that like didn't exist five years ago.
2: Do the
0: colors blend? So, like when they're in between stages, does it like a, a mix of the two colors? I don't know what the mix of the two colors no. would look like.
1: It, it it's a hard flip at oh, uh, two wavelengths yeah and and so um they're they both work in slightly different ways but uh the the end result is that you get a distinct wavelength of green uh when they're outside when they're normal and healthy and then a distinct red wavelength and you can measure this with uh, a confocal microscope and then using uh, Tools like ImageJ or, or others to uh, quantify the intensities of uh, a wavelength, and then there's some other emerging, interesting back to the AI. There's some some neat things that you can do with with that, as far as like training models on uh, edge detection of the cells or um, color detection. How many pixels are one versus the other, and starting to categorize what you see in a healthy versus a a diseased cell or a treated versus a not
0: so then you have this base of being able to see when it's happening versus when it's not happening and then you can intervene with your drug and then see very directly what's happening and even potentially there's like dosing or like how to deliver as well you could learn with machine learning like over time that would be something as well that you like you could fine tune it because some like a lot of drugs are basically like they'll kill you at a certain rate. So it's like, what rate does it you need to actually have to, or the, or the poison isn't worse than the cure. Like what, what actually is going to help you. So I imagine like that, all that's in there as well.
1: Yeah, that's one of the things with, with any new uh, chemical, you want to identify what's called the therapeutic index or therapeutic window of what's the lowest dose that minimal effective dose. And then what's the maximum tolerated dose. And that kind of gives you your safety range that you can work in. And one of the nice things about these molecules is they have very little effect on healthy mitochondria. They don't directly depolarize the mitochondria and they only shift basal mitophagy by a very little bit. But if the mitochondria become damaged with, in the lab, you can use something like um, CCCP or oligomycin, antimycin. these are toxins that damage the mitochondria. When you do that, the cells naturally increase the levels of mitophagy uh, to a certain extent, trying to recover and clean themselves up. But if you add our molecules, you get a really robust dose-dependent increase in mitophagy on top of that. And so with Mm -hmm. that, we've been able to identify an optimal dosing that can get the cleanup of uh, damage. Um, We've now seen, we've really focused on making sure that the compounds can do this one mechanism really well, um, more so than looking at disease models because like mice don't get Parkinson's no matter what you do yeah. to them. So I think a lot of drug discoveries focused on trying to demonstrate efficacy in a mouse is, is kind of misguided, particularly mm-hmm. for something like this, where half of the genes that cause mutation or that cause Parkinson's disease are directly within this pathway so Mm -hmm. we we know that um just from human genetics and from human pathology that like if we can get this mechanism right it's likely to be beneficial so our focus is to make good clean drugs we'll test whether they work or not in humans not in these
2: yeah makes sense
0: the are you in a state where you feel confident like teasing a little bit like how good the intervention happen with the mice turn on the colors or not or uh would you w- rather wait for the uh studies to come out
1: yeah no it, it's very clean we've we've shown a similar effect in the empty chema and the mito qc mice and with measuring protein levels using like a western blot uh, and those all correlate really well so we've rigorously shown that we're able to increase mitophagy to the uh, same extent with these different uh, model, so we know what that is, and that level that we see with our drug is similar to the amount that a um, another group, um, David Simon at Harvard last year at Society for Neuroscience, um, showed data from USP30 knockout mice. Uh, USP30 is the protein that our molecules inhibit, and so if you take that protein completely out of mice, it also raises mitophagy by a similar extent to what we see with our drug. In, in these three different models. So that's kind of an outside validation that what we're seeing is probably about maximal increase in basal mitophagy. Um, he also then showed that those mice are very protected in models of Parkinson's disease. Again, skepticism around mouse models of Parkinson's mm-hmm. altogether, but if you use a um, overexpression of alpha-synuclein, which is the protein that aggregates in Parkinson's, uh, if you uh, do that in the mice that have the USP30 knocked out, they are almost completely spared from neurodegeneration and Mm -hmm. they have dramatically lower levels of um, abnormal alpha-synuclein. So those are the two key things that go wrong in Parkinson's disease, which can be uh, induced in the mouse uh, with um, with this model. So gives us some some extra evidence that you know the mechanism that we believe to be linked to the parkinson's pathology is protective in one of the aspects of parkinson's pathology
0: we did the mice respond to the intervention in any other ways in in terms of like health span or uh, longevity because i know there's some there's some research out there saying that if you could you know you know boost up essentially mitochondria like you'll have some other types of effects on it or was it also like a lot of times I was wondering, like, oh, well, could you study all these other things at the same time? Usually it's like we're focused on one thing at a time. So I just have yeah. not.
1: Yeah, um, I would love to see that. I don't in not in this um, particular study. And we haven't done long-term studies to be able to mm-hmm. look at lifespan. Those those take years and are are quite expensive. Yeah. Um the mechanism though, we do believe would have some of those effects. Uh, so to step back into the mechanism a little bit more. Uh, when mitochondria become damaged, they get tagged with chains of ubiquitin, which then recruits an autophagosome to form around the damaged mitochondria. And then that whole bundle gets carried off to a lysosome where it gets degraded.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Those ubiquitin tags are added by a protein called Parkin, which is an E3 ligase. And then in most biological biological systems, there's a check and a balance, a yin and a yang. The USB 30 is the is the check on that action. It's a de-ubiquidating enzyme that is always on the mitochondrial membrane. And so it's just constantly looking for ubiquitin tags to take off. And so it's it's kind of setting this threshold of, you know, if there has to be a, a bit of damage in order for Parkin's activity to overrun the activity of USB 30. So that's where if we inhibit USB 30, we can increase that process. Well, the other way you could do that is by activating Parkin. To add those chains more quickly, you get the same effect. So all of that just to introduce Parkin as a player. And in uh, fruit flies, if you overexpress Parkin, if you make it so there's more Parkin, the fruit flies live longer. And they're healthy for longer. Uh, the, the females are fertile for longer, in, in suggesting a, a increased health span. Um, and then the the lifespan is also increased. You get both uh, a health span and, and lifespan improvement. So we think that that should translate uh, to... Uh, hope. We're hoping that translates to human as well, right? You, mm-hmm. you don't know until you know. Um, but the, the mechanism seems to carry one of the things that we see in human that is, um, kind of related to this, the quantities of parkin go down as people age, even without any disease, just as part Mm. of natural aging, parkin levels decrease, uh, USP 30 levels don't seem to decrease. And so Mm. I think that's kind of what happens. You end up with this imbalance of the natural homeostasis where you've got Less parkin, but USB 30 is still chugging along at the normal levels, And since so you end up with reduced mitophagy as you get older. If you inhibit USB 30 you restore that balance, and you could theoretically get youthful levels of mitophagy, even though you've got less parkin
2: do we know
0: why one degrades and one stays the same i mean doesn't degrade at the same rate or are they both degrading and the one just the park is just degrading faster or or is 30 the same yeah do we know that yeah
1: i i don't know that would be a good one to graph over time I I should pull all of those data back together uh and uh look at that uh, but i don't know the and answer then, to that whether they yeah. they go both go down and just one's going down faster Or or why physiologically why one would degrade over time and the other wouldn't, or even why the one degrades like the the why of aging is a is a really interesting philosophical question.
0: Yeah. Well, what um, if you if if um, if Parkinson's going down and you can decrease thirty to match the level, could you also is there any downside to increasing parking to keep on um, like, keep it at that level versus decreasing one to a different level.
1: No, it's, it's actually a really interesting approach. And that that's one we've been working on for a while. And a couple other groups have been trying, um, overexpressing proteins. You know, you can do that with gene therapies maybe, or, mm-hmm. um, you know, but it's, it's generally you know, there. You introduce a whole lot of like unknowns when you, um, with, with those new modalities of drugs, Uh, small molecules like typical medicine, type drugs, uh, it's very difficult to increase the activity of an enzyme. Uh, Inhibiting things Mm. is really easy. You stick something to a protein and it usually loses its function, but trying to make something more active is difficult from a chemistry perspective. Uh, That said, we actually think we have some parkin activators in hand. Now we've uh, we're just starting to characterize them in cell models, so they're a little bit earlier, Um, but so far they seem to increase the enzymatic activity and to increase activity, the rates of mitophagy in cells. Mm -hmm. There are other considerations um, as well in that um, the way uh, this process works, you know, Parkinson's that trigger that when there's damage, it adds things. So it's kind of like the gas pedal in the system. And if you push down too hard on the gas pedal, you might go really fast and you Mm -hmm. can take away your healthy mitochondria. Whereas Mm -hmm. if you're taking your foot off the brake, uh, there's only a natural limit to how fast you can go. you can't like run away too fast just by taking your foot off the brake. So from a safety perspective, I think USP 30 seems like it's um, kind of a safer path to this outcome uh, if you can get sufficient increase. Uh, whereas parking, you might um, you might project that there might be a kind of more narrow safety window with that. Mm. So there's some, some considerations sense. in terms of like the different approaches. Uh, but uh, yeah, we're, we're we're certainly interested in that approach and uh, continuing to pursue that ourselves.
0: Yeah. It, make, it makes sense. Reduce the complexity makes it easier, especially with all, all the other things you have to worry about funding, uh, employees, all these other different variables. The simpler you can make the innovation, in reference to what we're talking about, sounds like the the better route to go down. The what what do you, what do you guys expect to be the effect? If we're focusing on Parkinson's as the age-related disease, what effect do you see, do you do you guys hope? You're not at the level where you can make the determinant with the the mice studies yet, but What do you guys hope will be the impact like it will be will it will it be something that can help michael j fox for instance or for someone who is already has it pretty significantly or is it someone that has early signs and you hit it before it gets too advanced like what what is it going to look like
1: yeah um the i think in all cases the earlier you can intervene the better um, because this is a progressive neurodegenerative disease so the population of remaining healthy cells that can make their connections, um, you know, matters. And it's unlikely that this type of intervention would cause new neurons to come in into the space. But what it can do, we believe it, it should stop the neurodegeneration of these cells. The particular types of cells that are underlying, primarily underlying the motor symptoms of Parkinson's are these substantia nigra dopamine neurons that are known to be very susceptible to uh, mitochondrial toxins. Uh, And so because of that, we think that this should give them the protection that they're lacking to these mitochondrial toxins and uh, stop the neurodegeneration. So you would stop losing more neurons. And if you can hold those neurons as healthy, then the natural synaptic plasticity neurons are really good at like going out and making new connections. So if you can stop the ones that are left from dying, the ones that are there will then go back and regrow. And, um, you know, we see this in, in all other types of, of brain injury and things where like incredible ability to rewire, to have, uh, the remaining parts of the brain take over for the parts that have been damaged and, and get back normal function. So, we believe that this intervention should stop the neurogeneration, which should then allow the the brain to recover. So then progressively getting, uh, you know, better function as well. So symptoms mm-hmm. would would improve over time. Uh, neurodegeneration would stop very quickly.
2: So it is
0: something that could help out Michael J. Fox as well as it's the whole gamut. It's not, for instance, geared towards people with um, late stage or any... Any stage in particular, it looks like it'd be able to help everybody and yeah, have an effect ac- no matter at level. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think help across the board. Um, you know, it's yeah. it's you know certainly hope, hopeful to show benefit for everybody. Um, you know, it, we're we're definitely hopeful that it would have help there. Um, also, you know, speaking of Michael J. Fox, the the Fox Foundation has some really exciting initiatives that have just been announced this year with early. Um, testing, uh, they've they've identified with help of other researchers, there are uh, some abnormalities in, in people's ability to smell that are one of the earliest signs of Parkinson's disease before any tremors or motor symptoms are, are detectable. And those correlate also with an available test for the levels of aggregated alpha-synuclein protein. Um, right now looking um, in cerebral spinal fluid, but other people are working on translating that now to a blood test as well. Uh, and so with these combination of these tests, the Fox Foundation is really hopeful that we can start to detect Parkinson's um, at its very earliest stages before any symptoms come. And coupling that with this type of intervention, we may be able to find the patients in need before they ever have their first tremors and uh prevent parkinson's like clinical parkinson's from ever having uh from ever starting in the first place
0: yeah that's a beautiful vision i i hope um uh, the clinical trials come soon and then you guys can get something out there as soon as possible because people definitely need it I and mean, there's people that might get that that those results right now today or this year and um I, I i really look, i hope everything works out in terms of the clinical trials and stuff and I hope everyone listening as well um is is this going to be is this like a shot is this like a pill like how so and then like how often will people have to take this and then we're, um we're working toward it, go, a...
1: yeah
0: go ahead. go ahead i was
1: gonna say we're, we're working uh, toward a once daily pill that's the goal
0: okay so if i'm and how, what's the average age for people who develop Parkinson's? Is it like 35 or 45? Like how old do, do you be? Uh, how, how old do you typically? Yeah.
1: Yeah, the average age of onset is in the early 60s for most patients. Okay. And most don't have any genetic um, mutation or cause. They're what are called mm. theopathic or sporadic Parkinson's. That comes on in your early 60s and you don't really know why. And then it, it goes... Um, there are subtypes that are called early onset Parkinson's or young onset Parkinson's that are more often genetically linked with mutations in pink mm. one and Parkin, um, right in this pathway. And those can onset in thirties or even younger um, sometimes.
0: Well, and this will, your, your therapy, will be able to affect those as well, just universally.
1: Yeah, we think all, all, it has potential for all, given some of the modeling that we've done, uh, we think it will work for the sporadic Parkinson's. Uh, it, it's a clear link for the patients who have mutations in this pathway. Those early onset Parkinson's mm-hmm. uh, uh, are probably the ones that we would look at first because they, they have um, deficits right in this pathway. Uh, the other uh, side to that in consideration though is the early onset Parkinson's tend to progress much more slowly. So that means mm-hmm. clinical trials for those patients have to be longer to confirm the effect, the benefit. Yeah. That makes a sense. lot of considerations but, as you go into yeah. clinical trial design.
0: Yeah. Is, uh, do you expect, does the science back up that this would be good for an imper- person's entire life? So it'd be a pill they take for the rest of their lives. Uh, or is there any research that suggests that the body would start resisting or become immune to it?
1: Uh, we don't know those. I mean, uh, mm. you know, I, the expectation would be that it's one that you would have to keep taking or the imbalance would go back to where it was. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, we really wouldn't know if there are other adaptations until we do longer longer studies. Um, this is a mechanism yeah. that has never been um uh, drugged before, which is kind of an exciting place. A lot of drugs that go through the clinic are uh, just targeting the same mechanism in a different way, uh, but there's never been a drug that has uh, worked on USP30 or been able to increase mitophagy uh, cleanly. There are some natural substances that uh, increase mitophagy, but they uh, nobody's really sure exactly how they increase mitophagy, and some of them actually look like they're maybe mitochondrial toxins at high doses. Mm. You have to be a little
0: careful with some of those um, supplement type things. Yeah. So then uh, it's 2023, clinical trials within a year, ideally. What stands in the way from today to clinical trials? Is there like FDA needs to give you, you need to give the FDA certain data, like where are you from that? And then um, part two of the question is the um, now until like when someone would expect to be able to use it, if everything yeah, works out well.
1: It's a great question. Um, So standing in the way of first human trial, there's a battery of formulation and efficacy tests or safety testing primarily, uh, where we have to demonstrate that, um, identify how much of, at what level does this drug become toxic? Everything's toxic at some level and you have to find what that uh, maximum tolerated dose is. Uh, You have to do that in a couple of different animal species a small and a large, so that you can project uh, what the toxic dose for a human would be, and you need a couple of those points to extrapolate from. Uh, So going through all of that, that data then gets submitted to the FDA in what's called an investigational new drug package, where we'll go through a review with their committee members to uh, look at all of the data and kind of get that stamp of approval that, That we have a a hypothesis that is sufficiently justified to test in humans, and that we've demonstrated sufficiently that the molecule is safe enough to to do that first test. With all of that, then we would be able to start the phase one clinical trials, which really are specifically looking at safety. So, in that you'll test Mm -hmm. in 50 to 100 healthy volunteers who will take um, a single dose and then multiple doses of the Of the drug and just uh, look to see if there are any adverse events. If there are no adverse events, then you're good. Um, Ideally, you'll also somehow measure a marker to show that the molecule has uh, engaged the target. We want to know that our drug not only is safe, but it actually inhibits USB30 or increases mitophagy in humans uh, during that first trial. So that's kind of the first battery of work where we're um, about a year from being able to do the IND, um, probably another uh, year to have the final data analysis and readout and everything on that, that safety uh, in, in humans. From there, for Parkinson's disease, the efficacy testing where you do a phase two, which is kind of a small number of patients to test proof of concept, followed by a phase three, where you do a large number of patients to really demonstrate true efficacy over, over a durable time. Um, those take 10 years or so. Uh, the phase mm. two is, it's maybe gonna be a year or two. Uh, phase threes are, are in the, the realm of 10 years. So all together, you're, you're talking 15 years before this is approved and ready to go to um, the patients. And if there's some of these stages, there's no technological way to speed this up. like mm-hmm. you know, maybe maybe we can get a, a biomarker but uh, to show the benefit faster and we can, you know declare success but but really it's such a slow progressing disease. you need to say that, show that long long-term benefit. Uh, one of the things we're also looking at is, using the molecule for other diseases uh, in parallel with Parkinson's disease, uh, because we know mitochondria are everywhere in the body and are important for other energetically demanding tissue. uh, We may be able to use this in a clinical trial for something like chronic kidney disease or heart failure, where you have um, potentially a very short clinical trial and we could do that phase two, phase three epic CPs in a year or two so we may be able to get a drug approved um in the realm of five years as opposed to 15 uh, taking uh taking a board for one of those uh approaches in parallel
0: yeah i was wondering if there was like an orphan drug status or emergency pathway or a uh, compassionary reasons that would allow someone to you know sign a waiver saying this is exp- ex- experimental at a certain stage of you know not stage one but like later stages where they could have it sooner if it was if the need was greater if it would expedite it in any way um it's a how do you uh i don't know how do you how do you like stick with it when you're looking at something that you're already like several years into and you got potentially five to fifteen years ahead of you before someone can really really you know smile knowing that they're going to be using that and do better from it um how do you just keep grinding every day
1: Yeah, those are a couple of good questions. Um, First to address the the rare disease piece, it's something we're definitely looking at. Uh, The Mm. one benchmark that I kind of keep asking myself and asking the team is what's the shortest path to get a molecule that you would be comfortable taking yourself, that I would be comfortable taking Mm. myself. And, you know, I think some of that basic safety testing is a requirement that like we just have to cross that hurdle to show that this is something that like, yeah, I'd, I'd feel good starting to take this molecule and see if it does something good. I'd, we have to cross that before we can do any sort of compassionate um, use or, or trial type, type things. Uh, Cause there's that risk to reward balance. Once you know you're mm-hmm. reasonably safe, so then you can start to look at the re- reward side. Uh, and I think there, once we have that achieved, There are a few options for accelerated approval uh, for some of those like genetic forms of Parkinson's that are smaller groups. There are also rare kidney diseases and uh, some of these uh, heart uh, failure type things that that can be, I think could fit an accelerated approval path. Uh, So we're certainly considering that uh, as well. Um, To the broader question of how do you maintain the faith through this Mm -hmm. long, long process, The biopharma world really in a lot of ways is a relay race toward the clinic. Uh, And so we've built this really great early discovery engine where we can come up with novel hypotheses and do medicinal chemistry and make molecules and get them to the clinic. It's likely we're gonna hand off the baton at some point here through a pharma partnership to Mm. one of the pharmas who do a lot of clinical development and can execute those larger trials more effectively. And we'll continue to partner and work with them, but I think a lot of the execution um, then moves to that bigger group who has a lot of clinical expertise. Uh, And then even then that may hand off another time to an even bigger pharma that um, has worldwide distribution and manufacturing capabilities and marketing and all of the things that you have to do to give a drug to tens of millions of patients around the world. Uh, so it, those different stages of complexity and and different types of jobs you have to do, like the, the manufacturing and sales and marketing is complex, but entirely different set type of complex than uh, figuring out what you should make a drug for, and then optimizing that molecule to get it in the clinic.
0: That makes sense. The, um, so speaking on Michael J. Fox foundation, uh, what did that, look like is are they basically just like an nih like a little mini nih and they give out grants to people or is there like a more in-depth partnership with that with them
1: uh it's definitely a more in depth partnership than the nih and both are great uh organizations in in different ways uh, but the michael j fox foundation is really special i think parkinson's is much more imminently uh likely to be solved because of the fox foundation um uh, wow. they not only give up grants but they also give access to data, and they very strongly encourage multi-institutional collaborations. So we're members of research consortia where every you know week or two we're on another call with the uh, pretty much the entire core Parkinson's disease research uh, community uh, sharing data and talking about what is going on. And that's, Academics to other competing biotech companies in similar spaces. Like we're all working together to share information, to push the, the science forward because the goal is to get something that can stop Parkinson's disease. Um, they uh, On the data side, they have this um, Parkinson's progression marker initiative, um, which is biomarker data from patients. That mm-hmm. is like nothing else in the world. Uh, and we've been able to import over 50 terabytes of patient data that include whole genome sequencing, RNA seq transcriptomics, and DNA methylation data from the same human participants, all correlated together, tracked every six months over multiple wow. years. Like such a wealth of data that they've invested in building, which we can now build regression models that can start to progret- uh, predict the. Uh, biomarkers of progression or classification models where we can start to subtype, you know, which patients are more likely to have a response to a mitochondrial therapeutic, and maybe which ones are more likely to benefit from a lysosomal therapeutic, and which ones are more likely to really just, uh, you know, benefit from a um, synuclein based uh, aggregation uh, approach. Uh, and so That data is helping the field now to define more precise clinical trials. And the more precise we get, the less noisy the trial results and the more likely we are Mm -hmm. to do accelerated approvals and and all of these other things that like, we wanna show definitively that any intervention does what we said it was gonna do and that it's protective for some subset of patients like as quickly as possible, right? And so um, Fox Foundation through their data and their funding and their community building uh, really have just put parkinson's disease on a different playing field than alzheimer's or, or any of the other or degenerative spaces
0: yeah, i was thinking about alzheimer's and there's a there's the alzheimer's association or something but i don't i don't think they do biobanking or any of these types of things that I, I haven't heard of another organization having all like the community the the data sharing all these different elements of it that, that's really powerful
1: yeah, yeah, I, I, I think I a think lot there, there. There's a lot that are focused on uh, patient advocacy, which is also clearly important and, and benefits there. Uh, and mm-hmm. and a lot of these others do. There's a ton of research. The National National Institute of Aging funds a lot of Alzheimer's uh, research, and there are brain banks that are uh, collecting um, uh, patient samples rel- related to Alzheimer's. But um, you know it. It's much more dispersed. Yeah, it's an aggregated. Difference.
0: Yeah, it's a it's an aggregation of that stuff that's really powerful, especially as we're getting these machine learning models and this AI models. And everyone's talking about like how deep is your data? Like it sounds like Michael J. Fox, the Foundation has the deepest data like for Parkinson's and potentially age-related other illnesses, as they've been tr- I mean tracking people for every six months. I don't, and if there's a lots and lots of people that they've been tracking that that's that's massive like no wonder um like you're saying it it feels like it's imminent in terms of like a cure or or, or at, at the very more like a, a treatment to help people so are you would you think that that end of 20 2030s like there could be something where where people could if they got the they got the diagnosis like hey you have parkinson's that there's going to be things there for them to help them so they don't they don't suffer, it's not like a, a a slow, like a uh, you know, down to the right versus up to the right, they can just have a help keep ha- having a healthy, healthy life.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's plausible in that time frame. Um, and I mean, caveat that with an, an acknowledgement that, um, uh, you know, having the perspective of having been tangential to the Parkinson's field for over 20 years, uh, you know, that in the 90s when genetic mutations were found uh, everybody thought Parkinson's was imminently solved and in the 80s when some toxins Mm -hmm. were found to cause Parkinson's everybody thought it was imminently solved so you know uh, it's not done till it's done Uh, but it feels like this confluence of data availability with AI tools that can make sense of that data with new diagnostics that can detect earlier and New interventions going to the clinic that are working via distinct mechanisms. I think we've got a lot of shots on goal that will uh, come to fruition during that time frame. Uh, so I'm I'm hopeful.
2: Yeah.
0: Also, learning from the past failures. Every every failure is an opportunity to learn. So going down these different quagmires potentially, there's a lot of contextual subtext of things that you can learn there that then influences how you think about a question or a problem now uh even even structuring it uh uh so i even although i'm just saying which is to say that not time wasted i imagine that we still learned a lot from those those time periods that have helped accelerate what's going on now um even if it's just like we know not to go down those routes yeah
1: yeah all of these clues it's you know we stand on shoulders of uh, giants and you know, everybody that has come before building the information. That's, that's a really exciting time to be alive right now. We see exponential growth on uh, biological methods and data production as well as compute and it feels like everything is just accelerating at an accelerated rate. It's a fun time to be around.
2: It's like, um, sometimes I feel, is it a bittersweet
0: time to be alive? If you were to be diagnosed with something right now because it's sweet in the sense of there's so many people working on these problems there's so many great tools coming out there there must be something coming and it's better because you're you're going through something and there's not necessarily a great treatment for certain things right now and so you live on that 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 precipice of like it depending on how you progress like you may be fine because then there'll be a drug that comes and takes care of you or maybe you'll be like the last generation that falls to it and so um it's like it's a great time to be alive even in the sense that like there at least is hope um but then sometimes I wonder it's it bittersweet I imagine myself as someone if I was diagnosed with Parkinson's like but I feel that way it's like well there's a lot of hope there's something to hope for and I think that any time in history like there's a lot more like you're saying like shots on uh, on goal suggests that the people could be hopeful and I think um that's a powerful thing in of itself just to you know if you're trying to get up exercise do all the different things that can slow the progression i believe i was reading that us uh, you know exercise can can have some type of impact just like roll exercise or something in terms of like making sure um things are staying connected and whatnot so if if you had no hope and, and it was just like oh you'll it'll you'll suffer less which is still useful and, and you know but there's hope that you do these things i imagine like it makes it easier to get out of bed and keep fighting as, as you and other people keep fighting on, on on your side of the party to deliver their uh deliver something to people so like a bittersweet but still uh, probably the best time, like you're saying. The uh, transitioning to, um, looking look at the time we have left, uh, transitioning to uh, books real quick. Um, on Twitter, you said that the creative act from Rick Rubin is a great book. Why is it a great book? Why would you recommend it? I have not read this. This is not a challenge, uh, but what about it do you find significant? And then oh, yeah. I'll ask you a separate
2: question.
1: Yeah, I'm at the early uh, stages of the book, but so far it has exceeded expectations. So, I mean, Rick Rubin, if, if you're not familiar, is a music producer who has spanned, like, every genre, you know, uh, you know, Def Jam records, and, and BC Boys, and, like, some rock country to everything, um, and clearly has an eye and an ear for what's interesting and entertaining, and so his perspectives on uh, creativity, uh, I thought would be, you um, could be beneficial. And uh, I'm actually listening to the audio book, which he um, narrates himself. And it's uh, just, it's almost like a a soothing mantra of little tidbits of facts and tips. and And it just keeps going more and more interesting into the way the universe is connected and the way creativity sprouts and you know ideas happen because their time has come and like, it's why you often see many people will create similar things at the same time and uh you know how you can tune yourself into that more and open yourself up to be aware of what is happening around you to actually experience the world to cut out some of the noise, and, and then to just allow yourself to receive what the universe is handing you, and then be, be a filter to that, to think about, like, we have all of this input that's happening around us, and our job as creators is to be a filter for that, to allow the the right spark of our thing to come back out in a unique way that then mm-hmm. is pleasing to other people, Right. Um, and if you think about it in that way, uh, and it's one of the things that says, like all, all of us are creators, like just in how we chose to make this sentence or to get out of bed or which path to take to work today, um, these are all creative acts. And so these tips of creativity can be applied to everyone, whether you're trying to top the charts or create new drugs or just have a conversation.
0: I'm going to have to check that out that sounds amazing but um especially given the fact that i have to ask questions of people all the time and digest and be creative so the, are there other books you recommend or
1: yeah. uh yeah i mean as as you were talking about the the hope a minute ago uh, that reminded me you know a while back i read um how to live long enough to live forever by rick uh, who's a futurist, uh, science inventor kind of uh, person? Uh, anyway, in this book, he lays out this idea: this I- that at some point there will be this singularity where humans and computers will merge, and we can upload our consciousness and live forever in this silicon substrate, and you know, for all of eternity. Uh, which is sounds insane, um, but then he says, in order. For him as somebody who's getting up in age to make it to that point, he has to find bridges to get there. And mm-hmm. so he started with this idea that like, okay, by optimizing my diet, sleep and exercise, I can increase my odds of living to 100 instead of 80. And then by adding a really unique blend of, um, you know, biomarker tracking and supplements, maybe I can increase that to 110 or 120. And maybe just maybe by the time I hit one hundred and ten or one hundred and twenty, these uh, biological reprogramming companies will get their stuff together and we'll be able to turn back the clock. You know, we we can already in the lab mm-hmm. take skin cells and turn them back into stem cells and then take them forward into heart cells and whatever. So that next step is we're going to be able to. Take our skin cells and generate a replacement heart, a replacement kidney, a replacement liver, and we can be our own transplant um, donors Mm -hmm. in some time in the next 10, 50, 100 years. And then from there, you know, do that at a full organism level. So I think that was a super interesting book. If you're into like this futurism and longevity and health, that one impacted me a lot to think about like, okay, how can I change my life to try to? maximize my odds of uh living forever hitting that longevity escape velocity as people talk about we don't know when it's going to happen it may not happen but and i sure feel healthier the way i'm living my life after making those adjustments anyway so if i'm healthier and more productive along the way um, it's kind of a win-win
0: yeah exactly the uh, some sometimes people don't take care of their body but when you take care of your body, you're making your brain much more uh, have more horsepower type of thing. So, uh, definitely agree there. So, so I uh, so we we queued a bunch of people for questions for this, and um, one one just came in. and I got an alert. So I was like, oh okay. I've never read one at like literally 55 seconds. It <laughs> just came in. So this will <laughs> be kind of fun. So the uh, and everyone has fun uh, sign on names uh, for some of the social media. So salt and pepper 59 asks, and I have not read this before saying this, so hopefully it's not egregious, but one could imagine that excessively boosting mitophagy could result in the removal of healthy mitochondria, which could have a toxic consequence. Are there any indications from in view of studies and healthy animals that could be that, that, that could prove that? Is there, a, yeah, okay, you, you probably understood the question, go ahead.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's certainly a concern uh, looking at mitophagy as a target. We wanna make sure we leave the healthy ones alone. Um, that is one of the things that we're in a unique position having Parkin activators and USB 30 inhibitors that we can test. And, you know, we, some of our, our early uh, data there do suggest that um, USB 30 has a much better safety profile. Um, we're still working through, you know, fully analyzing what that means. But that's one of the reasons we've prioritized pushing USB 30 forward as a target uh, is because we we do have repeatable conclusive data showing that it it doesn't clear the healthy mitochondria when mitochondria are good they're pretty much left alone and then um when you have damage it it kicks into overdrive mm.
0: sweet so uh salt and pepper hope that answer your question i think it, it did if i were, were imagining it from your point of view so uh another one and I'm going to call them Kane because I don't know the appropriate, I think this is their, their real name, so I'm not going to say the whole thing. So Kane asks, how to skip from P1 to P3 utilization regulation, regulatory grade RWD with oncology breakthrough designation as a lens? I don't understand yeah, that question, so, so hopefully you do.
1: Right, so, so to interpret that, what I think is being asked there is, how could you fast track from a phase one clinical trial drug to a phase three clinical trial drug? And then start tracking real-world evidence of the benefit, uh, and mm. using the breakthrough designation. And this comes back to something that you were asking about earlier as well, of like how do you how do you get the uh, you know compassionate use or get more people doing this? I think when you get to efficacy testing, I, I do think it's really interesting that like you want to track for a long time. At some point, if your drug works, maybe you run into more ethical considerations of having to do a placebo-controlled trial for a very, like for a 10-year period, as opposed to um, letting that placebo group take the drug. And so the way a lot of the trials are set up is, I mean, the placebo effect on drugs is really high. So you definitely need to do a placebo-controlled trial to demonstrate that the drug is better than sugar pill. Um, yeah. What most of the trials are designed for is a paradigm where you'll start with a placebo-controlled group and do that for some period of time and track, and then maybe flip the groups or um, have your uh, placebo group will roll into a treatment group in a new cohort. And so then you can start to see um, this group that was on placebo, then got on drug, and compare like placebo to control. And then placebo, once they got on drug, did they also catch up or, you know, how durable if you take these people, the first drug group and flip them back to placebo, do they then drop off or does the benefit stay durable, right? So there are interesting things you can learn by flip-flopping your groups. Uh, And so I think there's, you need to do that to conclusively know that your drug does have a beneficial effect. That said, if you get to real world evidence and you know your drug is safe and you just start giving it to everybody and you can actually track everybody's usage in the real world and see, do they get benefit? Then you should have high enough statistical numbers that you can overcome, the you will have enough power to to see a benefit Mm -hmm. even without a placebo group. And maybe you can compare to the other, like if you've got 10 million Parkinson's patients in the world, not all 10 million are going to do them, are going to take it, right? So even if you have some volunteer group, you can compare that to the rest. All of that opens up the need to track biomarkers and to be able to detect the quantity of drug in mm-hmm. the, your participants in some automated way. This, that's a big challenge in clinical trials right now. So let's say you open up this real world, anybody can take it if they want it. How do you know whether they actually took it every day or took it every other day or skipped a week or, you know, and how, are they gonna come back for blood testing to show benefit? Are they gonna just mm-hmm. maybe take a survey every every day, every week, every year? So a lot of those, how you, how you go about capturing the real world evidence and the other benefits is uh, there are a lot of questions there and there aren't really good methods for those those types of real world tracking. Uh, I'm really curious to see some of these things. Like, I don't know if you've seen Brian Johnson and the um, like the blueprint for longevity. Um, like, some of the things, a lot of hype and craziness around the way all that's being done and tracked and uh, shown. But the underlying approach of like, let's measure everything we can about a person, and then get as many people as we can to start tracking that same set of things about themselves consistently over time, that now starts to grow a cohort of people who you do know enough about their their ongoing health that you could maybe start to try some interventions, like particularly for like a longevity type thing, which mitochondria enhancement might be. That would be a great cohort to then say, we have this now experimental drug that's been shown safe for experimental use. You're already tracking everything. Add this Mm -hmm. to your repertoire and see if it has benefit to any of your biomarkers but you've got to have that that window of data which is very few people have right now
0: I wonder if you made the like let's say that someone had a drug and they were trying to do you know and in, in, uh, made the world their their petri dish in this way that if they made the ability to take the next drug or the next prescription you had to like take a blood test or fill out some stuff and then you were able to release it that probably make the carrot and stick. Quite uh close together, so you'd probably get it that way. Um that's the only way I could think about how do you incentivize people to wanna to know if they're, they're taking it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, is if um is if it was linked in that way. That'd probably be the only way I could think about it. And I I mean that's if you would even be allowed to do it. But um, for people, people have been listening in for less. I don't know how long we've been going, but the what, what and they're probably excited to hear where you guys are gonna be for the next year. To 15 years to find out how things go. Hopefully not 15. I'm, I'm hoping for five. But uh, what's a, what's the best way to stay up to date with what you guys are working on? Is it like a Twitter? Is it a newsletter?
1: Yeah, we're, we're pretty active on LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, those are the two primary uh, places. Uh, we've also recently set up a YouTube channel and have some cool content there. Um, Spring's been doing these interviews with other people in the field that have turned out to be pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. So there's a video with the creators of both of those um, fluorescent uh, mitochondria mice uh, that I talked about. Uh, so those those conversations mm-hmm. are interesting. Um, there's a nice explainer on mitophagy and how the proteins I talked about work. Um, so we'll continue to add content there. And then vinseriabio.com is our website and we're also continuing to expand content there uh, as well.
0: Sweet. Then uh, I want to thank you for coming on the show today, uh, educating us on the world of Parkinson's and going down the nerdy rabbit hole. Sometimes people don't say the proteins and stuff
2: or they hand wave it, but you got right in there and I appreciate that. So thank you so much for coming on the show today.
1: Yeah. Thanks a lot. This was a great conversation.